All right, Trinity Church, how are you doing today? You sound amazing. Uh, can we thank the worship team for just leading us so well today? Just appreciate their work during the week, their planning during the week to be able to come together and then just be able to lead us so well and to be able to focus on Jesus. And that's really what hopefully every Sunday is about today, especially as we kind of continue in this series called Death and Life. We've kind of taken this phrase, we'll often use it, this is a life and death situation. We've kind of inverted those ideas because what we see all throughout John chapters 11 and 12 is that people are moving from death to life. They are moving from this place of unbelief and this sense of, of not being convinced that Jesus is who he says he is to a place where they are placing their faith in him and life is coming from that. We also see people who actually are staying put in their unbelief and death continues to be the place where they're in. So we see these contrasts vividly all throughout these two chapters and today we'll continue in the same way. So if you have a Bible today, if you wanna to open to uh, John chapter 12, if you got some notes on the way in or didn't, there's some paper copies in the back. If you pull out our app and go to resources, sermon notes, today's date, you'll be able to keep those digitally as well. So either way, on that. This year, let me switch gears real quick. This year, Veterans Day has kind of landed in a unique spot where we'd want to take an opportunity and just thank those among us that are veterans. Would you stand if you're a veteran? We just want to honor you and thank you for your service. Thank you. We very much appreciate you and the way you've served. And I hope you got some really great free stuff on, Friday, on Thursday. <laughs> I called my dad and he was like, man, I hit everywhere today. And it was great. So <laughs> including a haircut. And that was pretty cool. So anyways, good things. And we're grateful for you and grateful that we can join together today. Today we pick up the text in John 12 where Jesus is having this conversation with a group of people who have sought him out. We use the word seeker sometimes and all kinds of connotations related to Jesus. And in this case, they were the truest sense of that word. They were seeking an audience with him. And so we're still in that conversation that Jesus is having with these Gentile people who've come to a Jewish festival, one of the biggest of the year, Passover, and in the midst of all that, he's still having this conversation with them. And what he's told them before is he's told them that, he, that what they need to do is love their lives less than they love him. He actually uses words like hate your life versus love your life. Loving your life will ultimately be saved when you hate it, when you have this sense of, of letting go your hold on it in this life, you will find it in the next and so within that conversation, Jesus is continuing forward, and today what we're going to see is he's going to say, I'm actually, I'm not just talking to you about things you ought to do, I'm telling you what I'm going to do. He's going to lead by example, and today what we're going to do is we're going to get to peek into a little bit of the turmoil a little bit of the tension that he's feeling in his soul about this reality, because what he told us last time we looked at this passage, my hour has finally arrived. 
All throughout John's gospel, he has been foreshadowing this idea. My hour is not yet. It's not time. And now he tells him in chapter 12, now it is. Now my hour has come. And so we're going to walk that through today, and we're going to hear Jesus, from his own perspective, talk about what it means to take this step of obedience and following his Father all the way to the cross. So here's our now what statement this week. Thank Jesus that he gave up his life so that you could become a child of light. We'll explain that today by the time we're done. Thank Jesus. That's really what our service has been about and what it will continue to be about today, that he gave up his life so that you could become a child of light. Number one in your notes today, Jesus demonstrated courage like no other when resolved to fulfill his mission. Jesus demonstrated courage like no other when resolved to to fulfill his mission. We're picking it up in John chapter 12, verse 27. Now, this is Jesus speaking, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice from heaven, uh, then came, then a voice from heaven came, I'm sorry, then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there heard it and said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Our cinematic culture is filled with examples of storylines of characters who willingly lay down their lives for the good of others. I did a little internet research because in my mind I'm thinking, man, I've seen so many movies that have that concept of a character being willing to die on behalf of the good of others. And I was trying to trigger my brain and I came across this site and this is the title of the page, Gut-Wrenching Heroic Sacrifices. That was pretty cool. Gut-wrenching heroic sacrifices. And and it listed what they called the top 10 from their vantage point. What I thought was incredibly fascinating is that eight of the 10 were from the genre of science fiction and fantasy. That's interesting to think about just for a second. Eight of what they would say the top 10 gut-wrenching heroic sacrifices came from genres of film that are science fiction and fantasy. That was interesting. Now, by the way, this is a spoiler alert, but if you haven't seen these movies, you've literally had years to do so. (laughs) I do not feel bad in the slightest, so here we go. Here's here's of those 10, here are eight of the 10 that were from that genre. Yondu from Guardians of the Galaxy 2, Boromir from Lord of the Rings, A Fellowship of the Ring, Harry Stamper from the movie Armageddon, if you can think that far back. And interestingly enough, a robot, the T-800 from Terminator 2, (laughs) Nux from Mad Max, Fury Road, Tony Stark from the Avengers Endgame. And some of you are like, wait, what? That's on you. That's on you. (laughs) This one, I remember I was in junior high when a friend took us on a birthday party, and we went and saw um, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Spock, right? (laughs) Spock gives up his life. And I love this last one. The, The name of the movie was Star Wars Rogue One, and for the character, everyone. The Battle at Little Bighorn, apparently, so... Now, when you think to these characters, if your mind, you might not have seen all those movies, but your mind went to a couple that you might have seen and you were processing, yeah, I remember that scene in the movie. It's usually towards the end, right? A lot of buildup and a lot of climax. And then this character, this character doesn't just die, but they willingly do so. 
And, and you remember the tension of that moment. You remember sometimes kind of even maybe kind of letting out a, because <gasps> you never saw it coming. Or if you're my wife, you see everything coming. I hate watching movies with her. She's like, this is going to happen. Stop. I like to live in ignorance. Let me just kind of enjoy the moment. But she's always right. She just knows what's going to happen. So, so if you're like me and you had that, that moment in the movie, you're just like, wow, that just happened. Here's what's interesting, though, about all those examples. They're all fictional characters. Not a single one of them in reality ever happened. But really, the other thing I want you to see is they're all foreshadows. Well, I guess the rewind, they're all shadows of really what Jesus did. The most courageous, the champion of heaven, what our hero did is knowingly, willingly went to the cross on our behalf. Gave his life away so that we might live. The illustration that he used last time was unless a seed is planted in the ground and dies, only then can life come from it that blesses other people. And so Jesus is going to talk in this passage today about literally planting his life in the ground, as it were, and being able to say, this is the sacrifice I'm willing to make on your behalf. This first part of our passage today, it really demonstrates the inner turmoil, the emotional anguish. And, and he's having this kind of almost like as he's talking to this group, he's almost having an internal conversation, kind of thinking out loud. I've come for this moment, should I say, Father, bail me out. I want to, there's a part of me that wants that, but I'm not going to do that because this is why I came. How on earth could I step aside now? And it's interesting, the other three Gospels all record Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, which narratively-wise will happen a few days from now from where we're looking at John 12. John's Gospel does not include Gethsemane, which is really true a lot of times. John's Gospel is unique mostly from the other three most often. But this is kind of our Gethsemane moment in the Gospel of John. This is Jesus sharing what is so vexing, what is so difficult, what is so filled with tension in his soul. I've come for this reason. But he's saying to this group of people, but you have no idea what I'm about to do. And so it's in that moment that Jesus is sharing. He says that his soul is troubled. The Greek word that's translated in our English word troubled means to cause one inward commotion. I love that, that definition. To cause someone inner commotion, to take away his calmness of mind, to make restless. So this is what Jesus is going through. And interestingly enough, this is what Jesus shares in your notes. Jesus is letting the crowds and us in to understand the tension that he was sensing before he would go to the cross. I find this amazingly powerful that we have a savior who doesn't put on a front and simply act like what he's, he's not that kind of stoic, kind of, you know, blank stare, just kind of going to go do what he's going to do. He is sharing, this is filled with anguish, what I'm about to do. Because the thing that we often forget in the mix, Jesus wasn't going to just physically die. Jesus was going to be somehow separated from the Father and all of the white hot wrath that all of sinful humanity deserved was going to be poured out singularly on him. Man, if there was ever a day for you and I to stop and pause and say, Jesus, thank you. 
It's a day like today when he peels back the curtain a little bit and lets us inside on this amazing sacrifice he was going to make for us. Something, we, we use cinematic examples, they all pale deeply in comparison to what Jesus, the Son of God, was going to do for us. He talks about his hour being here, and we've seen already his hour is synonymous with his sacrifice, his purpose in coming to atone for our sin. And he notes this idea that there's a part of him that would want to avoid what's to come. It's so incredibly overwhelming. But he, but he raises this question, how could I set this aside? This is my purpose. This was my mission. And interestingly enough, we can read the gospel sometimes and infer other things. We can infer that his mission was to be a good teacher. And that was definitely something he did. We can infer his mission was to do supernatural miracles. And that was something that he did. But what we can forget is that his mission had a singular emphasis. He came to give his life away as a ransom for sin, atoning us and what we needed so deeply. This was his purpose. So he's, he's having this conversation kind of in his head and, and, in, and with these, this crowd. The interesting reason I think the crowd is let in is this. When they've heard, my hour has come, I think they're thinking, yeah, you just rode into Jerusalem. Everybody went nuts, waving palm fronds and saying, blessed is the king of Israel. Everyone has kind of vocally said, you're him, you're Messiah, that's your hour. You're gonna conquer Jerusalem now, aren't you? That's what they're thinking this is all led up to. Now he's been accepted. Now he really is the one. Rome is going down. But what Jesus meant is that my hour means I'm going to be hanging on a Roman cross in less than a week. And what sounds like and look like utter defeat, we know better. We know better because a savior didn't just die on a cross and the, sinful, the sinless sacrifice, the sinless lamb of God didn't just simply take our place. But we know there's more to the story. We know he rose from the dead on the third day. We know, we just sang about it. We know that he conquered sin and death and Satan. All the things that have been against us our whole lives, he put to death once and for all. Yea, God? Yea, God. And that's this focal point today because we know the fuller part of the story that those in the middle of it hadn't quite experienced yet. In the middle of this quandary that Jesus is working through, he says something curious. He says this phrase, Father, glorify your name. And the emotional tone of that I wonder about. Think about how that could have been said. Father, glorify your name. And I mean now like some sort of a demand, like do this right now. Maybe it was said this way, Father, glorify your name, please. <laughs> like a plea in some way. Father, glorify your name. Ugh. Almost like this guttural groan and this motivation of I, can, I gotta keep pressing on. I don't know that we know the exact tone, but I appreciate the way Carson describes what was going on. This is what he says. This request is nothing other than the articulation of the principle that has controlled his, Jesus's life and ministry. The servant who does not stoop to his own will, but who performs the will of the one who sent him even to the death 
of the cross is the one who glorifies God. So I'm not totally sure of the tone of what Jesus was saying and what he was after, but here's the wild thing. The father answers. Father, glorify your name. And he says this powerful statement comes from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Don't do the flannel graph version of this story. Oh yeah, I knew that happened. Just stop and think about it for a moment. You're this group of people huddled around Jesus. He is not just sharing truth that your kind of mind is being blown away. What do you mean plant a seed? What does all this mean? And then he's talking about this vexation that he has, that he's going to fulfill what God has him here on the planet for. And in the middle of all that, he kind of calls out to the father who responds I have glorified it and I will continue to do so. What do you do with that? Oh yeah, that happened. Just like another Tuesday. The heavens respond to the comment that this rabbi makes. Who is this guy? Who is this guy, not in the sense of even kind of, you know, kind of rubbing the chin, hmm, fall on your face. Who is this guy? The heavens respond to him. What is going on? We read in the text, some thought, oh, it's thundering. No clouds in the sky, but there must be thunder. Others say there's this angelic voice that somehow speaks out and again as we've seen so many times in John's gospel, just people missing it, missing it. The supernatural has happened as this amazing Messiah is literally having a conversation with his father. This is actually the third time we have recorded in the gospels that the father responds, that he says, he audibly says things from heaven. The very first was at Jesus' baptism. The, the spirit in the form of a dove come and rest upon him. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. At the beginning of Jesus's public ministry, then somewhere in the middle of it, when he's telling his disciples, I am going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. And he goes up onto this mount. We call it the Mount of Transfiguration. And in that, taking three disciples, the father speaks again audibly. And now here at the end of his uh, earthly ministry, he's going to do it one more time. Man, you got to do something with that, right? You, you can't just kind of go, well, that's weird. There's something about him that is insanely unique that demands a response. Number two in your notes today, Jesus' death both condemned Satan and freed us. Jesus' death both condemned Satan and Freed us. Chapter 12, verse 30. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. I want you to consider what Jesus says about this supernatural voice. 
I want you to think about this. I think as I've kind of looked at this over the years, I always assumed that this was to give a sense of encouragement and to give a sense of strength and confidence to Jesus. I think I've been wrong the whole time. What does Jesus say right here? Very clear. We don't even have to guess. That was not for me. That was for y'all. And the interesting thing is when you go back and look at the other two instances prior to this, at Jesus's baptism, at the mount, there's always people there. It's never Jesus by himself hearing an audible voice. There's always people, and watch this, the voice is always talking about Jesus, not to him. This is my son and whom I am well pleased in the Mount of Transfiguration, do what he says. Not talking to Jesus, talking to the disciples. And so think about this. Jesus is saying, I talk to the Father all the time. I don't need him to speak audibly for me to know he's here, for me to know he's giving me confidence, for me to know that I'm fulfilling his purpose for my life but you do. So imagine that, that what we would think would be of this great sense of comfort or encouragement isn't even for Jesus, but it's for those in the crowd to go, who is this guy? And what about him do I need to respond to because I've never heard anyone do this before. He begins to talk about the judgment that is about to happen a judgment on this world that has the prince of this world that will be driven out. That's a, a curious phrase to me, the prince of this world. I thought Jesus was the king of kings. So who's this prince guy? You know, what's that all about? Two times later in John's gospel, Jesus uses the same phrase, and it seems pretty obvious. He's talking about Satan. Look at John 14, verse 30, Jesus speaking, I will not say much more to you for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Later on in John 16, verse eight, when he, in reference to the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment, about sin because people do not believe in me about righteousness because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer and about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. So this is an interesting title, the prince of this world. I think when we think about Satan, we think about titles like the devil, okay, which means the slanderer. The one who continues to say before God, look at how they're so screwed up. We think of this adversary, right? And, and in, in Jesus' upper room discourse, he'll talk about Satan that way as well, the adversary. But the prince of this world is a phrase that not only do we not use often, but it conjures up something that makes us ask. Princes usually have some kind of standing, power, rule. What does this mean? So look in your notes, two thoughts. What's important that is that we understand two things about this interesting title that Jesus uses for his adversary, the devil. First, he was allowed some degree of reign and rule over this world. 
He was allowed some degree of reign and rule over this world. Let me show you another passage from Ephesians 2. As for you, this is Paul writing to the Ephesian church, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when? When you followed the ways of this world, watch, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Hmm. There was some sense of reign and rule that Satan had, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. But I want to share with you this powerful concept that helps balance that. Look at the next part of your notes. But that his rule wasn't like that of a kingdom, but that of a delegated empowerment. His reign was not like that of a kingdom, but of a delegated empowerment, the word dominion, for a time that was always going to be revoked. One of my all-time favorite prayers of Paul is in Colossians 1, and that prayer ends this way in verse 13, talking about Jesus. For Jesus has rescued us, watch, from the dominion of darkness. Note, it doesn't say from the kingdom of darkness. And when you look at that word dominion, that, that original Greek word means exactly what I just said, delegated empowerment. Delegated empowerment means the ultimate rule and reign belongs to me. I'm just giving this to you for a time. I'm stewarding this to you, but I still own it. He rescued us from the dominion of darkness and watch and brought us into, what's the word? The kingdom. Brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So the reality is, is that we need to understand that Satan had been afforded some degree of rule and reign, but always in the context of being under the leadership, the ultimate rule and reign of God. I grew up in, um, in churches that you, some of you might have, and in our, in our setting, we'd have this children's church thing. And among other things we do, we call them sword drills, right? You get out your Bible and see who can find Zephaniah 2-2 the fastest, and you stand up and start reading it, and then you're like, I don't think that's really that, and you stand, you know, craziness. But it was really good, we learned where things were at in our Bible, and at the end of that time, whether it be through a Bible drill, whether it be through some sort of game, you could earn some kind of points or something to, to kind of choose these different things to choose from that day. And it could be as much of a candy or a toy, but they, they had these great little tracks by the company called Chick, okay? Chick tracks. And, and they were basically graphic novels. They were really well done, great art. They were really intense and probably not appropriate for a fourth grader, honestly. <laughs> but, I, but I do remember this. Often, as good of a, of a, of a kind of a cool you know, thing to read through, often though, Good and evil would be demonstrated by two equal and opposing forces going at it. And it was later that I would realize that as powerful as Satan may be, he doesn't stand a chance and is completely overwhelmed by the greatness and the grandeur and the power and the reign and authority of God. They are not two equal forces. And so when we realize this, we realize anything that Satan has, he has because God has given it to him and absolutely plans on revoking it. And that's what Jesus is talking about. The prince of this world will be driven out. He will be condemned. He will be judged. And that day is absolutely coming. Jesus is saying that he would be, and then he uses this phrase, he'll be lifted up. 
And it draws back to what we remember reading back earlier in this book in John chapter 3. Jesus used very similar language in reference to a narrative from Numbers 21. John 3, 14, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up and that everyone who believes may have eternal life. Look in your notes. Jesus' use of the phrase lifted up has somewhat of a double meaning. As the Greek word that Jesus used can mean both raised up, like physically raised up, as well as exalted. The same Greek word can mean both things, both raised up physically and that of exalted. And the reality is, is both were true. Jesus is saying, the Son of Man is going to be lifted up. I'm going to be raised up above the ground, above the earth on a Roman cross. This is how I'm going to die. But what he also was saying was absolutely true. Through death, I would be exalted as well and will draw people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation to me and to be included in the family of God. Look how Ephesians 2.4 puts it. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. We just read from Romans 2 a moment, or I'm sorry, Ephesians 2 a minute ago. You were dead in your sins and transgressions. Just a few verses later, we read this. It is by grace you have been saved. But look at verse 6. And God raised us up with Christ. That same word, we've been raised up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Why? In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So this idea, Jesus is saying both things are true. I am going to be raised up and I'm going to die this kind of death. But ultimately, through death, I'm going to be exalted by the Father, and I'm going to draw people from every part of this world. This good news is going to go out to everywhere, and people will be drawn to me, seated ultimately with me. Now, what powerful stuff we're hearing Jesus talk about what's coming, and then we know more of the story. Finally, today, in your notes, number three, responding to the light of Jesus has an immediacy to it. Responding to the light of Jesus has an immediacy to it. Another way of saying urgency. There's an urgency to all this. We go back to John 12, verse 34. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, you are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Watch this phrase. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Jesus saying that he would be lifted up, I want you to catch this, the people totally understood what he was saying related to his death. And this is what they're doing now. They're wrestling with something. 
He has made this, what to us seems like a very interesting metaphor. I will be lifted up. I'm kind of like, I'm not sure. Okay, I don't, I don't know what that means. Up on a stage, I don't know what that is. These people completely understood being raised, lifted up meant that's how he was going to die. And they go right into that concept. And what they do is they use their Jewish scriptures and they understand. But we thought that Messiah never dies. And where would they get that from? Is that them Jim, just kind of making stuff up or wanting to really kind of believe, you know, in a Pollyanna-ish way? No, actually places in the Psalms especially would talk about how someone would always sit forever on the throne of David. How this idea that Messiah would never see an end of days. So, so they're inferring the right things from their scriptures that talked about Messiah being eternal. And what do we know? He is. But, but in this case, he would die first. So this is causing them some incongruence. And I really want to say I really appreciate their astuteness, knowing their scriptures to say, but wait a second, we're confused. Because we thought that Messiah would live forever, and now you've just told us you're going to die. Let's walk through their logic for just a minute. And they ask this question. They've, they've already said, we don't understand why this is going to happen, how Messiah is going to die. And then they say, who is the son of man? Now watch their logic for a minute. They're first saying, hey, you've just come into town. This has just happened. And the whole town has gone crazy in identifying you as Messiah. And you've never once said, oh, no, not me. You've received it as though that's the truth. So we've seen, we've seen people identify you as Messiah and you respond positively to it. Even intentional things like riding in town on a donkey demonstrates that. So, so we get it. You're here proclaiming yourself, demonstrating yourself to be Messiah and the people are acknowledging that. But then we have this problem because Messiah is supposed to live forever and you've just told us you're going to die. So now we have a miss. We're trying to understand what you're saying. And then here's this third idea. You've called yourself in other times the son of man. You said this numerous times in other settings, even maybe even earlier in that conversation. Is that someone different than the Messiah that we've been waiting for? I think this is the heart of their question. Is son of man different from Messiah? Are, are you someone that we're looking forward to and someone else beyond you? They're totally in a conundrum. And I can tell you, I appreciate this line of questioning. Other times we've seen people completely miss what Jesus is saying. These people are using scripture and they're asking informed questions. Help us understand. But I want you to see a powerful thing. What we have in the text we don't know that Jesus ever went on to explain that confusion, but the interesting thing is he goes right to urgency. He talks about this idea again of light. Light has been a consistent theme all through John's gospel, all the way in chapter one. Here's another reminder, John 8, 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness but will have the light of life. So, so many times Jesus has talked about light. And the interesting thing is, not only has light come up so many times in John's gospel, it always tends to come up the same way. 
Not just the fact that light is useful, not just the fact that light somehow leads to life, it actually is always talked about related to urgency, related to this idea that you won't have the light forever, you need to respond to it while it's day. Night is coming. So there's always this sense of urgency in the mix when Jesus is talking about light. And that's his intent again. He says, you will only have it for a little while longer. There's a limited amount, a limited time frame that you'll have it with you. You need to utilize light while you have it because you'll be rendered immobile without it. He talks about people can't see in the darkness to know where to walk. Think about that for just a moment. I was wondering this week if we should try to demonstrate this by bringing the room down. You could still see through different uh, areas where light pours in. It wouldn't do the thing, but think about this. Have you ever been in a space? Maybe it was on a tour into some of the deep caves and you go into that cave and you literally are like this. I cannot see what is my literal hand in front of my face. Maybe you've been in the woods, and this, the, the one was a tour. This one wasn't. It was deep thicket of woods. It was a cloudy night. There was no moon. There were no stars. And you are literally bumbling around trying to find your way. When you've been in that kind of darkness, think about how incredibly vulnerable you are. The safest thing to do is stand here and cry for help. <laughs> Just shouting out for help, someone. Because I can't even take a step lest I fear I'm gonna step into a hole. I can't take, make a move for fear of what's around me that I can't see. So people, Jesus' listeners would have been hearing this and would have probably had an experience to go back to and go, yeah, I've been there before, that is a scary place. And I don't have a cell phone I can pop out and just turn my light on. So that utter darkness leaves us rendered immobile, and Jesus knows that. And then the resolution to this limited time drama, I love that verse we kind of emphasized. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you become children of light. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you become children of light. Look in your notes. Another way of saying that, faith plus opportunity equals rebirth. Faith plus opportunity equals rebirth. Here's what I mean by that. There are people in your life, in your relational world, this might even be your story, that you would think about over time have had seemingly opportunity after opportunity to respond to the gospel. It is not an unknown thing. It is not as though I've never been made aware of who Jesus is, how much he loves me, what he did for me at the cross and the empty tomb. That, that's not unknown knowledge, but yet time and time again when there's opportunity, never respond. This passage says they're still in darkness. Or, and this is an interesting kind of other slant to that. I've met so many people that would tell me, Todd, I've always believed in God. And I don't doubt that. Not necessarily having a name, not necessarily having an idea. We would just kind of call them deists. And that also might be your story. I've always believed in a God. 
But the interesting thing has never been encouraged to come to a point of decision that just believing, having a, a basic understanding and a faith in the big guy in the sky is not at all what the gospel is. God's not interested in you simply acknowledging that he exists. James chapter two calls that demonic faith. The demons know God exists really well. They shudder, but they don't have faith. Those are still in darkness. But it's when I believe, I have a recognition that Jesus is, as we sang today, the way, the truth, and the life. And that I take the opportunity to make it clear before God, I put my confidence, my trust in what Jesus has done for me. Faith plus opportunity equals children of light, equals rebirth. Many of you here today in this space, many of you on the plaza, many of you watching online, you've made that decision. But what I find so interesting is John, this same gospel writer in a, a later letter, he's gonna say it a different way. He's gonna say that the light was really essential in initially coming into the family and in initially understanding who Jesus is and how much I need him. But what we still need is the light to continue to walk to walk in a way that is pleasing to God in a way that is in connection with our brothers and sisters. Look at this from 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message that we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim that to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But look at verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Light is essential, light is crucial, not only in us coming into the family of God, but continuing to walk in the family of God. And what is that light? It's what we understand of the truth and the character of God primarily revealed in scripture. That causes us to be able to say, I know what God is like. I know what he calls me to. I'm going to keep walking in that. And as we do, we not only are rightly related vertically with the Father, we're rightly related with brothers and sisters. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and a forgiveness that we find through what Jesus has done for us. And that is powerful truth, and I want to leave you with that today, that, God, we want to be a people not only who are entered into the family, made children of light through this revelation of Jesus, but we want to keep walking in it because you've given that to us for a reason that makes us really great family members. Let me tell you what's going to happen. I have been um, really uniquely invited next Sunday to uh, be um, a guest speaker at Second Baptist Church in Redlands. This is a wonderful African-American church right downtown. It is their 129th anniversary. That is really cool, yeah. 
we're reaching 41 this year, and we think that's a big deal, okay? 129th anniversary. And I'm going to be over there next Sunday preaching and just an incredible privilege of getting to know Pastor Anthony and Bishop Jackie. And I've loved that friendship that started about a year and a half ago. And I feel very honored to be asked to do that. My son, Jackson, will be here with you next Sunday. And he'll be wrapping up this part of the series in John chapter 12. So either place, you're going to find in our net. So we're glad that, <laughs> that you'll be there with that. All right? Let me go ahead and pray, and we'll wrap up our time today. Father, we do thank you. We thank you that you had sent your son to the cross, and we thank you so much, Jesus, that you didn't flinch. You had every opportunity. You knew what you were getting into. You knew it was more than just offering a physical body. It was a soul that was going to literally be sin for us. And so we thank you so much that you went to the cross and that you created a way for us to be your family, for us to be children of light. We just want to pause today and say thank you. We would be lost without that truth and without what you've done in our place. So we say thank you, thank you for that. If you're here today, we said just a moment ago, faith plus opportunity equals rebirth. I'm gonna give you that opportunity. If you have wondered about who God is, if you've just been kind of on the edge going, I know he exists, I know he's out there, I don't know what it means though to enter into a relationship with him. I don't know what it means to, to hand over the reins of my life. The great news is his love for you is so immense and what he offers you in salvation, you will realize in short order, what in the world was I holding on to? So I want to give you an opportunity, A, admit. Admit that you're a sinner who needs a savior. Admit that you are, as a human being, lost apart from this amazing thing Jesus has done on your behalf. B, believe. Believe that this Jesus that we've been hearing from his mouth today Believe not just that he was intention about going to the cross, but that he did. That he lived a sinless life, he died a sacrificial death, he was raised supernaturally on the third day. Believe that Jesus did this on your behalf. He accomplished what you can never do for yourself. See is choose. Choose by saying, Jesus, I acknowledge, I believe, I'm convinced that you are who you say you are and you did for me what you said you did. I put my confidence in who you are and your work at the cross. I wanna live my life following after you. You can make that decision right here, right now and I pray you wouldn't let another moment, don't wait for another opportunity or never afforded the next breath in our lungs. So Father, thank you, thank you that you not only sent Jesus but that he was obedient to do everything that needed to be done on our behalf. We love you and we pray in his great name, amen.